Okay, so now we're rolling. Now we're rolling. Okay, I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. So uh, on today's opus of Triloquy, we're going to talk a little bit about film music. And we have um, a couple guests who work in film and commercial music that uh, you'll hear from uh, in a bit. But first, Scott, I kind of wanted to think about some of our favorite uh, films and, and maybe even film scores. So if someone asks you the question, what's your favorite movie? Are, are you even able to answer that? It seems like a difficult, oh, you have a favorite movie. The Fisher King. The Fisher King. Yep. And you have you have yet to show that to us. I haven't showed that to you I've yet? never seen The Fisher King. Oh, well, we'll yeah, we're going to fix that very soon. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, talk to me about The Fisher King. Why do you love it so much? Um, I, I, I think it was one of those, you know how sometimes you see a movie at the right point in time in your life? Yeah. I think that that was uh, one example of it. Forrest Gump was another example. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, the color purple. The you know, color purple. Yeah. All of those things were just, you know, it all, I, all of those were very poignant films. I just saw them at the right time. I have to say, and maybe it's me, um, falsely or inappropriately judging, but the first time you told me that you loved The Color Purple and that you actually knew the movie, it's not just one of these films you've seen once, I was a little surprised, <laughs> actually. Because, you know, The Color Purple is very much a part of uh, of black culture when it comes to some of these inside jokes. And, you know, every time I go home and... and uh, and there's a, a, a there's a guest there. You know, I'll tell, I'll say, "Hop on who this woman," or, <laughs> <laughs> or of course, there's the "All my life I had to fight." You know, and mm-hmm. you know all all of these little um, soliloquies and and uh, and and colloquies in that film. It's loaded with them. And really great music written by who? Do you remember who who's behind Quincy that Jones. score? Quincy Jones. Yeah, and a lot of people don't think about him as a as a quote-unquote classical guy, but he, he had uh, beginnings. He studied with Nadia Boulanger uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, produced stuff for Michael Jackson and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, his his score to uh, The Color Purple is, is really beautiful, and we even air, you know, some of that music every now and again. You were talking about themes in this uh, interview with Will and Vela, how Leia's theme is just sort of, yeah. you know, so iconic and part of the fabric. I think that Quincy's main theme, uh, Seeley's theme, I think is so quaint and simple and beautiful. What beautiful music and what a beautiful story. You know, next time, Scott, when we're all sitting around the table and there are folks around, we'll have to reenact that dinner scene toward the end of the film. <laughs> because I, I, I basically know everybody's part. My favorite person, and me and my friends down in Memphis, shout out to Ian. Man, I miss Ian. Uh, we oh, Every time he came over for dinner, we would alternate uh, playing different people. I was really good at Oprah's character. I was going to say, <laughs> I could do that. Confused. But, but... <laughs> But I'm but I'm I'm good at Whoopi Goldberg's lines too, especially when she gets mad at Mister. You know, talking oh, yeah. about I never asked you for anything. I never asked you for nothing. Or right. you know, she's begging on the table. And man, what a powerful movie! That 
shaving th- scene, though. Yeah, she almost got him, and Suge saved his life, didn't Ooh. she? Sister, sister saved his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That razor looks dull to me, Seely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's. <laughs> <laughs> but but imagine living that reality, you know. Um, yeah. You know, just living post. You know, um, and I wasn't expecting to go down this little rabbit hole, but, you know, when you think about The Color Purple, that is not a movie that takes place during antebellum antebellum slavery, but the reverberations of it are still very much there. You know, people living on these farms, and, of course, racism is alive and well. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, go go revisit um, the, the, the Color Purple. Um, maybe even one day um, I'll come, I'll get to come up to work uh, and tell you, I was married now. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you. <laughs> right. That'll be the shocker of the um, century. Um, but, you know, so for my, when, when someone asks me what is my favorite movie, I, I name three. I have three favorite movies. Um, the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really only count the first one because, you Same. know, um, really, really incredible music to that one. Um, Kill Bill, which I count both of those movies, mm-hmm. which which has a very eclectic uh, film score. Uh, but then also The Shining. I really love uh, that that movie, first of all. But the music is just so um, intense. It's a character. It, it's a character in the film. And it even starts with um, a melody that you hear a lot in classical music. So of course uh, the DSCRA, um, uh, a, uh, a melody that a lot of composers are sort of obsessed with. Uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff, for one, is even inscribed um, in his only uh, on his only standing statue, which stands in Knoxville. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah, the only statue of Rachmaninoff in the whole world is uh, in Knoxville, and I've uh, cool. yeah, I have a few photos uh, there that uh, that that I'll show you sometime. Um, but you know. In addition to, you know, having our, our favorite movies, um, I have a, a favorite movie score. Um, so The Village, M. Night Shyamalan, the movie is fine. It is what it is. Um, you know, I saw it in the theaters. But, you know, hearing that movie score for the first time was um, was really, uh, I don't know, just transfiguring for me. Or I don't know what, what word I'm looking for. But it was just so beautiful. But then also just um, simple in a really beautiful way. Um, you know, the, the solo violin part played throughout by, uh, Hilary Hahn, mm. is, you know, that, that I, I, I often call that uh, movie, the Hilary Hahn concerto. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was conducted, um, you know, I have another, you know, important tie to that music because, uh, Lucas Richmond, who, um, conducted that, uh, that score, that studio session, um, gave me my first permanent job. So he, he, uh, he hired me on, uh, into the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, so cool. um, and we and we air some of his compositions um, here um, at APM uh, every now and again. But yeah, so I have my favorite movies, and then but I definitely have my um, favorite movie music score.
Yeah, shout out once again to uh, Hilary Hahn. Man, she really sounds beautiful there. All right, well, um, on this, again, like I, uh, like I mentioned, on this Opus of Triloquy, we're talking with uh, two musicians, a composer by the name of Will Vandercromert and um, a cellist. Her name is uh, Vela Farquitson. I'm so sorry, Vela, if I'm <laughs> mispronouncing that. I, I did my little um, easy way to pronounce it here. Farquitson, um, Vela Farquitson, and, uh, and they have some really beautiful music that they play that we're going to uh, close out this um, Opus of uh, uh, Triloquy with. Uh, we're going to talk about not just film music, but commercial music. Music in general, you know, um, music used to um, uh, sell things for commercials or, yeah, so it, it should be a good one. Um, but before we get into that uh, conversation, uh, I, I just thought, do you do you uh, have any idea who wrote the very first film score? Who Who's credited with that? And it's, and, and it's a composer you know, but Char- one you might not think of. Charlie Chaplin. Uh, earlier than that. Earlier than that, I'll give you a hint. Um, he is uh, French. A French composer wrote the first film score. Um, well, obviously, I'm going to think in the <laughs> Ravel and Debussy realm. But... Sure. Well, uh, the the first film score composer um, is actually a guy named Camille Saint-Saëns. He oh, wrote, he wrote, do tell. He wrote um, the score to a film. I think um, I'm trying to remember the English title in French. Um, it's Assassination uh Duke Dickey, or the assassination of the Duke of Guys. Um, so, so, and G U I S E, you know, <laughs> not the Duke of Guys. Hey, guys. Right, but, right. Um, and uh, so, you should definitely uh, uh, read up a little bit about that film. I don't know. I don't know if it's easy to find the film, but um, but the music is still very much out there. So, um, as we transition into this conversation with Will and Bella, how about we hear uh, a little bit of the very first film score? Thank you so much for joining us here today on Triloquy. It's a pleasure to have you. Great to be here. Thank and you. Vela, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to um, having some chats about film music and uh, and commercial music. But, uh, Will, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit um, about yourself? Who Who is Will van der Kromert? Who is Will? That's <laughs> for sure. So um, I'm a composer for film, television, and commercial media. We kind of, a lot of us kind of tend to straddle all those different camps. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out as a composer. I just knew that I was far more interested in playing and creating music rather than uh, just playing music that other folks had written. I mean, both are, are wonderful processes. There's a real discipline, I mean, to, to studying the work of other composers. But I was so interested in writing my own. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was kind of the catalyst for for everything that has kind of followed thereafter. And how, th- how did the two of you become connected? Valley, you got that one? Yeah, that was actually through my husband, um, who's also a musician. Um, you and Matthew are childhood friends, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah um, so back. when we moved uh, to Minnesota, we just reconnected. Yep, we reconnected, and then I, through conversation, I found out that Matthew, who's a violinist or string player as well, had married a cellist, and I'm like, oh man, you know, I've got I've got session players hostage now. This is great. Yeah. I love these neighboring nests of musicians yeah. that just live. I think that's great. Um, so, uh, you know, when I first met you, we had our first meeting. What what uh, struck me the most is that you move. You know, you're from here, from Minnesota. You moved to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And you moved back. 
<laughs> and no shade to Minnesota. It's it's beautifully cold here, but it, it seems like living in Los Angeles would be something you would want to do considering your line of work. Absolutely. And on I don't think I would have a lot of the opportunities that I've been fortunate enough to take advantage of now if I hadn't had that season of life that I spent out West, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but to move to Los Angeles and to stay, to be a transplant, which ironically enough, most everyone who lives in I, Los I Angeles I there, is, I know, yeah. Right, right? <laughs> no one's actually from Los Angeles. Um, but to move there and live there and stay there is to adopt um, a lifestyle mm. and to adopt uh, a culture and to adopt um, a work-life balance that wasn't for me. Uh, that on top of the fact, I, I moved away from a family not knowing that, man, we're really close. Sometimes mm. you have to move 2,000 miles away from home to realize that your family's actually really tight-knit. Sure. So there were, there were a lot of factors that ended up going into my decision to move back. Um, but again, if I hadn't spent time out there and hadn't spent time pounding pavement and been lucky enough to end up in some really great studios and, and get some really great writing opportunities, I don't think I would have had as many doors open for me here in Minnesota as I've been lucky enough to have. Sure. And, you, you know, when you talk about pounding pavement, just, you know, <laughs> all of that comes after all of the, the practice room pounding mm -hmm. and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, why don't the both of you tell us a little bit about uh, your musical um, upbringing and, 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 and how it became a, a sort of a career for you? Well, uh, my mother is an opera singer. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up with music playing nonstop. I mean, whether it was classical music and jazz on the radio and um, going to see operas. My mom singing in operas when I was like four years old. <laughs> um, Would and your then, mom sing at home? Like practice at home? Yeah, and oh, then wow. <laughs> singing at home and having students singing at home. Mm. Um, it was kind of always in my heart. Um, and then I heard Jacqueline Dupre playing yeah, the cello. Of course, yeah. um, and as cheesy as that may be, I was in love. Um, and yeah, I started playing piano first. My mom thought that that would be a, a good thing for me to start on, mm -hmm. um, just to get a good sort of basis. Um, and then a year later, I started cello. And, <laughs> I, you know, I knew pretty soon that it was going to be this huge part of my life that it's like you once it's there, you can't leave it, you know? Yeah. 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 What about you, Will? Yeah, so I uh, I came I came up in kind of a musical family as well. My father, though he isn't a musician, the man is a shameless promoter of my mother and I, who who are musicians. He appreciates music enough to to be a musician for all intensive purposes. But my mother is a classical uh, and folk fingerstyle guitarist. She's she taught for about fifteen years, continues to teach actually. Um, she kind of came from uh, musical stock as well. So my great grandmother, ironically enough, played piano for silent films. This we're talking, oh, wow. we're talking before talkies, right? Title wow. cards to explain dialogue and things like that. My uh, late great uncle Med was a Grammy award-winning jazz musician in a band called Super Sax. And um, then my grandmother was a pianist and a singer as well. So my mother kind of perpetuated all of that. Um, in my sister and I and I kind of early on I, I was dabbling on the piano and I would sneak downstairs and listen mm -hmm. to my sister practicing and I'd wait right around the corner and quietly correct her in my head that's a half step wrong you know just see if you can fix All that right. out there you know <laughs> and it wasn't long before I was asking for piano lessons recording on a 
four-track Tascam and discovered the computer shortly thereafter. It's not like the computer was a new invention. I had just discovered it subsequently. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, it it was just kind of omnipresent. A guitar in every corner of the house, an old creaky Whitney upright downstairs, and parents that were very willing to allow band practice to happen at 10.30 to midnight. Okay. Wow. Okay. You know, Mozart started off the same way. The, the, <laughs> the, the, piano, the piano was delivered for his sister. Yeah. So he started playing it. So you're on your way, man. There you go. You <laughs> know, if, if not already there. <laughs> All part of the process. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to first, so I, I'm a first generation professional uh, oh, wow. uh, musician, you know, so I played a bassoon professionally for a decade. Um, and, you know, for my family, it was just very odd, you mm-hmm. know, just to, to think about, you know, first of all, understanding that this is a profession that you could get into um, and then much less making it work, you know, but with the two of you coming from musical families, I wonder if the specific sorts of uh, the specific corners of classical music that you landed in, if that was sort of uh, unfamiliar or did they have doubts uh, surrounding what that uh, future could hold for you? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting going into a career like that where you're not sure um, you know, where will it lead to and, and everything like that. Um, for me personally, like my mother was always fully supportive. And if you're working hard enough, you know, and she was always making it possible for me to travel, you know, and experience different things. Mm-hmm. Um, as a musician, having freelanced for a little while, I I kind of realized that I wanted to add more to my mental palette, if you mm. want to say. Yeah. Um, so I actually got into software um, so now I'm kind of juggling the two. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that having that um, other side, I feel like it's liberated me to take on musical endeavors that I want, that I really want, you know. Yeah. And I'm just so excited to see how that will take my career, um, you know, over time. And then, yeah. and then, you know, talking about software, Will, software is, it seems like, uh, you know, if you have a second instrument, a second primary instrument, it's the computer in a way. Right. And actually it was, I mean, it's a steep learning curve for anyone that, that approaches music intuitively. I think if I had to liken it to something, it's kind of like studying music theory for the first time because mm. we have music, this thing that we approach intuitively and with a lot of heart and emotion and it. It's something that we access on um, a soul emotional level, right? And then suddenly what? You walk into your first year theory class and you want me to think about music and Mm -hmm. analyze what I'm doing? No, this is just a natural extension of self. I think the computer in that respect is a bit like that because it's very debilitating until you gain a certain amount of fluidity with it. I see. You know, Just like any other instrument, really. Absolutely. You know, when when it's all about... um, your ability to to manipulate the instrument, you know, yeah. that's always what it's come down to. So I, I think it's a really fair uh, parallel to say that the computer is my second, third instrument. Do you remember the first day sitting in front of Pro Tools or whatever you use and just thinking to yourself, <laughs> what in the hell am I going to do? I think I blacked out in frustration <laughs> okay. if I if I had to remember. And it's like, I mean, it's like anything else. I mean, we start off with chopsticks and then we're playing Brahms, right? And, and, People assume that that's kind of the graduation, but there's all these kind of little things in between that happen. You know, maybe we take on some some Bach inventions and then maybe we learn a pop tune that we're just absolutely mad for. And all these things kind of happen in between. So for me, it was like I sat down, 
looking at a lot of different program windows and being absolutely baffled. That was chopsticks, right? But then suddenly you start asking questions and you start listening to what a lot of other artists are doing. It's like, those drums are really cool. How do I program drums that sound like that? I was I was absolutely infatuated uh, with Adam Young of Owl City, who's, of course, a Minnesota yeah. Otana native. Mm-hmm. And he had these incredibly dense but light electronica drums that I spent so much time trying to trying to recreate, you know, and by doing that, I essentially taught myself not only how to program drums, but write for drums, Yeah, you know, okay. so these things kind of just become extensions of, of curiosity and question and creative ambitions. It just kind of falls in line one after the next, much like any, you know, instrumental coursework would. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you're when you're learning to work with all of this software, you know, did did that come before or after or during uh, you're actually taking these gigs? I, I guess we need to 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 line up. So you, you went to school and you, and you studied piano, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I think I remember from our previous conversation that you know uh, studying theory and getting into form mm-hmm. kind of got you more into the composition side of things. So I, I guess I, I want a little bit of clarity about the journey from, okay, I'm going to be a composer to I'm taking commercial clients and I'm Ah, writing a very specific type of music. Gotcha. So I think they absolutely happened in tandem with one another. But at the same time, I think I just had a very early curiosity for music. Before I was reading music, before I was taking lessons, I was at the piano picking out the theme to, you know, Forrest Gump, right? That was was my thing. And then... um, you know, took some piano lessons and joined some bands. And I think it was somewhat out of necessity that the computer kind of emerged. I needed to make a recording. You know, I, I had the band needed a recording. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Will, you're, you're the front man. That, that should we should add that to your list of res- already huge responsibilities. Right. Because the front man always gets the short end sure. of the stick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so but I, I had a godfather that sent me a computer. He had worked for Apple for some time. He said, you know what? I'm not using this. Just experiment. And so that's exactly what I did. And I think I became really interested in the fact that I didn't need to wait for my friends to come over or I didn't have to call players. Suddenly I had the whole paint palette at my fingertips and it allowed me to take chances and experiment and grow as a composer. So that was kind of these two things happening in tandem, approaching composition very intuitively, but at the same time, kind of the tech emerging alongside it. When, um, you, when you look at that tech, wasn't that daunting though? You said, no, all of a sudden now you've got access to this whole palette of colors. You know, like you, when I first got everything installed and ready to go, I went, oh my God, that's right? so much. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I remember the first day that I got my first serious, like, nuclear-grade orchestral sample palette. Mm-hmm. And I think I had just been, spent so much time listening and lusting after that sound and assuming that it was unattainable that by the time I finally got it, it was so intuitive and I was just ready to go. I, th- I did my first mock-up in 10 hours after I got the software. And, I mean, that's kind of the scary thing is that with softwares like these, it takes about 10 hours to churn out three minutes of fairly convincing music. Never a uh, replacement for live players, though. That's always something that should and, be said and, alongside that. And that's that. what I was going to jump mm-hmm, onto. And yeah. Bella, I was going to ask you, are you not threatened by the idea that Will doesn't actually need you to record not something so. beautiful? <laughs> I, I think he needs me. Okay. Yeah. Kidding? <laughs> sure. Of course. Um, you know, I think it's important to embrace the new things and, you know, just see how how is it changing and how can I fit into that you know and whether it's you know you you record this yourself and then you know i come in later and you know make it 
more pretty, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'm okay with that, you know, and I think that, um, I think it's, it's only important to look forward, you know, not to kind of be worried about what will happen. So, um, I mean, personally, I've experimented playing electronic music, you know, with my electronic cello and kind of putting it through the computer. And I realized that you can actually get even cooler sounds if you use a live instrument through the computer. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how how I've also tried to experiment. So you do need Vela after all. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's really, it's really interesting too. I think the second that either instrumental samples or even just the computer as a whole, the second that that becomes the thing that is driving the writing process, it fails. I see. You know, and so I, I don't, regardless of how convincing samples become, we will always need live players because you can't program emotion, hmm. you know, and I mean, and it's, it's really interesting too, because I think in, in some respects, um, I mean, we can all be terrified and scared that our jobs are just going to go away. Right, but I mean, there's AI composers that are coming out right now. I, what? Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I heard that Spotify has software that just kind of creates music, and then that way they don't have to pay any licensing or rights or anything. Have I you? wonder, you know that song, da -na 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 -na, like the song that always plays on the Spotify commercials? You guys probably all have premium. I'm probably okay. the only cat in here that still yeah, is ad, listening yeah, to the advertisement. Shout out to Ad Free. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It's kind of formulaic. Production music as a whole, commercial music as a whole, um, can tend to be a little formulaic. So then, uh, bust my bubble here. Um, out of everything in TV and film today, how much of it is all digital? Oh, it depends on how well programmed it is for, for me to be able to say. I mean, like, a lot of television, for budgetary reasons, um, tends to be sampled instrumentation. However, there's a caveat with a, um, a handful of, uh, of live players that come in. So, um, for example, on this last pilot I was on, um, actually I'm, I'm very blessed. My, my wife is a lovely singer as well. And, um, they, they said, you know, we, we really want vocals in this. We really want a female vocal. Cause there was something about the, the narrative that, that reinforced that decision. And I mean, I, I pulled up a a sample is just like it's not doing it for me and so i yelled honey can you come down here please and you know yeah. she was she was kind enough to come and, and track it for me and the directors loved it so i guess the point being it's really hard to tell because she was in a bed of sampled instrumentation you know and so i'd say more often than it being one or the other it's often a dualism of okay. both kind of functioning mm. in tandem with one another. Yeah. So over and over, um, you know, you've been using this phrase commercial music. Sure. How about you demystify that for, for folks? What is, what is commercial music? How do you define commercial music as sure. it applies to your job anyway? Sure. So, I mean, commercial media we could define as anything that's sold for a profit if you really want to define it that way. But when I talk about commercial music, I'm kind of talking about the thriving advertising scene that we have kind of right here in the Twin Cities. So when I first moved away from Minneapolis, I had no idea that there was amazing things happening here. Carmichael is here. Uh, Fallon is here. You know, all, all those all those big ad agencies are right here in Minneapolis. Hmm. So essentially when I'm talking about co uh, commercial music, I'm talking about any piece of underscore that is assisting in the process of selling a product or a service, right? So unlike unlike film and television music, which happens to be more narrative, you know, and and a good commercial can be narrative too. We've seen, I think it was a Subway commercial. Okay, shout out to Subway. Am yeah, I, okay. We got to pay for yeah. that, right? Deep breath, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, uh, I mean, it was this beautiful piece of film with a really moving score, and then 
Subway logo pops up. Yeah. So in terms of like what is actually commercial music and what score, companies are constantly having to reinvent the wheel and find a way to hold attention when there's less and less and less of it to go around. So I would say commercial music, this is the longest answer in the world, is <laughs> a means of selling a product, but I would say that line is getting blurred with underscore. Bella, Bella with uh, you're playing so much of this commercial music. Do you ever think about your role as a musician, um, as someone who's helping to sell these Subway sandwiches? Or, <laughs> or you know, do, do, do you ever, do, is there ever a project that uh, you don't feel completely comfortable participating in based on what it's for? You know, I haven't played in for that many commercial gigs, okay. to be honest. Most of it has been with Will, and everything that Will has done has been great. So um, usually I'm playing, you know, in quartets and orchestras and, um, you know, stuff like that and more personal stuff. So, um, you know, if, if it were to come to that, though, um, part of it is, you know, I have a job. So that's really awesome. You mm -hmm. know, it's it's great that, you know, you you need me, you know. Yeah. Um, you have to sell you, yourself a little bit, I think, in order to be successful. Um, so it's a balance, you know, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Actually, I really like that, though, because, like, that is the real question. How do I maintain artistic integrity right. but still realize that I am, in fact, selling a service at the end of the day? At the end of the day, I, I have two versions of every cue I write. One's for me, and then one is for the director and the producer whether it's a commercial or film or TV show, doesn't matter. The first one's for me, and this is how I think it's supposed to be. And then every subsequent revision, sometimes we arrive at a, at a better place. And I'd say, actually, I've been really, really lucky. The last several collaborations I've had, the, the visions have really lined up really well. But all the subsequent revisions are sometimes, you know, the realization that you're delivering a service. So I'm going to make these changes, even though I would perhaps do it differently. I did it in my first draft, hmm. right? I'm still going to make these changes because at the end of the day, you are at, you serve at the pleasure of, of the director. You know, Scott, that reminds, <laughs> Will saying that reminds me of the idea of, you know, having, sometimes having to put our personal feelings about music or uh, music's role aside when we, you know, present certain things. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, maybe that's a, a good segue into, you know, the, the sorts of aesthetics that we center in this genre we call uh, classical music. So while names like Mozart and Beethoven are very familiar, sounds like John Williams are very familiar, or even uh, James Horner, James or... Horner, Bernard Herrmann, and, mm -hmm. you know, these sorts of names. Uh, Will, can you talk a little bit about um, your philosophy when it comes to the uh, conversation of classical music uh, in, in a in a broader sense? Do you, sure. Do you feel like you know some of the sounds you create um, can uh, make their way into the center part of what we consider classical music? Um, sure. Yeah. I. So the question is, the sounds that I create, how can that kind of live alongside classical music? Right. Or even become the focus one day, maybe. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's really funny. Canon, in terms of repertoire, only becomes canon because enough people have decided that it is, mm. you know, and because enough time has elapsed and passed for enough people to make that collective decision, right? So enough people decided that, that Bach is a genius, which he was. I'm just going to state my humble opinion. Okay, speak your right? truth. <laughs> um, but the other interesting thing, we were talking about the Mandalorian kind of oh, yeah, yeah, beforehand yeah. and uh, sort of the, the new... Uh, Disney Disney Plus series that's coming out. I had a colleague come over, and this is kind of a roundabout way of answering the question, but I had a colleague come over, and we were listening to a couple of cues from The Mandalorian, and he was kind of uncomfortable with hmm. the whole thing. He was like, you know, this this uh, 
this doesn't sound like Williams. You know, and this is this is a kid that grew up with Star Wars, you know, and suddenly when you're presented with something that doesn't match the canon, doesn't match the repertoire, in quotes, people get uncomfortable, right? So we have had enough time slowly in film music where we're arriving at a place where a score that came out in the 70s, one, two, 50 years ago, right, mm-hmm. is suddenly becoming canon. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I'd say... The whole process is just going to repeat itself along film score, too, because it's just doing what much of opera music did. It's supporting a narrative sure. and, and a drama, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think we run the risk of maybe making some of the same mistakes and idolizing canon and putting it in a museum and not treating it as a living, breathing, organic piece of art. Yeah. If we're not careful, I think the same thing could actually happen to film music. Vela, I wonder if you have an, an opinion on that, you know, the, the idea of where the... Uh, the aural definition of classical music is going based based on uh, the the sort of subgenre of classical music that uh, that you guys work in. Yeah, you know, I it's definitely evolving. I can feel it in myself because you know, as a music student, um, I take contemporary music classes, and to me, yeah. when I was kind of starting to listen to that kind of music, I didn't really like it very much, you mm. know, and it seemed very sort of out there to me, just like you were saying, well, about that guy, you know, hearing uh, Mandalorian and it's so different. Um, but as I'm, I've been exposed to it, now I'm starting to categorize it in, in the same area as classical music, um, you know, up to a point. And I think we're always being pushed by artists to to change our perspective. Sure. Um, and like the Mandalorian, I think that, that I actually just watched it last night. Oh, did you? The, th- the three episodes. <laughs> it is good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and my husband and I were talking how cool it is that this music is different, you know, and how, you know, we were super into it maybe because we have a different perspective, but how it's really going to push everybody else to start feeling comfortable, um, you know, listening to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how... Um, we talk about the way that we present this on the air and, you know, we always, you know, you can't get through a piece that you don't like and jump on the air and go, boy, that just kept going, didn't it? (laughs) Well, you can. Well, I mean, you're not supposed to. One can. You're you're not supposed to. The the thing that I was, uh, the comparison that I was trying to draw is how you have a certain set of classical listeners that like the Bach, the Beethoven, the Brahms, and then, and then anything beyond that sounds too different. Like, ooh, I don't like that. So now here we are with uh, you know somebody who grew up with Star Wars and loving the Williams who completely nicked it off of Holst, and right, okay. and now they're and <laughs> Mars, now, right, and now they're going there. Um, now they're they're saying, oh, this new Mandalorian thing doesn't sound like. How do we break past that? How do we set people up to not expect something and instead take in what you've put together? I mean, I don't think you have to. I think I. I... You have to understand that I think there are always going to be naysayers in every single artistic endeavor, right? And I think I think this comes from the fact that we forget that every music, every piece of music at one point was new, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. New makes people uncomfortable. The reason we survived is because coming out of the cave was scary, right? Saber-toothed tigers had sharp teeth. It's a survival thing, yeah. right? That's why new is bad. It, the Croods, it's a delightful film with a fabulous score. It's built around this whole thing of new is scary. Definitely okay. worth a watch. The the crew. The Croods. Okay. Oh, the Croods. It's a okay. lovely animated film sure. with a score by Alan Silvestri. Anyhow, um, yeah, all music was new, and that's going to make people uncomfortable. And I think if we make allowances for enough time to elapse, it will be celebrated. And... Mm. Um, 
but it's it's tough too because need we necessarily wait for time to elapse? Can we celebrate art as it is emerging? So I think those two things are going to kind of have to happen at the same time, both a continued effort to celebrate new art, but also understanding that new is scary for a lot of people and that that will change. Who are we listening to now that you think in the future is going to be one that we point to as a a, a master? You know, like who's who's going to who has staying power? I think Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are doing some really interesting things. I was going to say Trent Reznor. Yeah. He made Scott happy. I think they're doing, <laughs> I think they're doing some really wild things. Um, I, I see kind of, I mean, this happens in all music. Music always comes full circle, right? We always kind of uh, start somewhere, and then we say, oh, that's old. Let's not do that anymore. And then we go around the circle, and then suddenly we arrive again. I think like we're, fashion or anything right, else. Exactly. Yeah. It's all cyclical. So I think in, in some respects... Um, we're experiencing a second or third love affair with electronics from the 80s. And I think Reznor and, and Ross are doing some, some really dope stuff with electronics right now. And I, I think they're going to continue to be celebrated. And there's this constant blurring between what functions as um, underscore in a film and what functions as sound design. So the short film that I'm on right now, much of the underscore is just drones. Mm. You know, it's it's really Betty synthesizers with an occasional acoustic guitar, God willing, a piano, you know. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it's it's very ambient. It's very understated. And if it could be night air in some of these scenes, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's almost doubling a sound design. So I think I think uh, Reznor and Ross are going to are going to be kind of grandfathered into that canon of of what's new and cool. Vel who, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Who was it that wrote? For us and um, oh, get out. Oh, that was um, oh. See, only because you asked me. It's um, <laughs> oh my god, very important uh, black composer, and his name is uh, Abel's uh -huh. Michael Abel's. Uh -huh. Yeah, he was experimenting with incredible chants. I think in Swahili and mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, he he was doing really neat experimental things, and I'm I mean. To illustrate it, I'm sure that some people have taken a listen to us or the social network. or sure, which won an Academy Award, I think, if right, I remember. Exactly. Yeah. So it's celebrated. But I'm sure there were plenty of people out there that listened to it and listened to you know some of these strange uh, these strange chants. I'm using strange in quotes. Sure. And, um, and listened to this repeated piano motif that, that Reznor and Ross did and thought, what is this? You know, but now here we are. It, it's won an Academy Award and it's absolutely celebrated. And I think it's going to continue to set trends in terms of what's happening in media music. Yeah. So again, scary, but it, it, it can change people's perspectives with time. I mean, Vela, you, you already mentioned that, you know, taking these contemporary music classes sort of uh, served as your introduction, but you started to appreciate it. What, what, what was the the connection there what made you go from oh this sounds strange to oh this is really important music yeah um you know i think it was playing it um hmm, yeah just sure kind of um my approach to practicing it and how do i kind of understand how to um make this emotional you know and at first maybe you think oh this isn't emotional you know but then you realize this is very emotional mm. it's just a different way to express an emotion in the in the end it's the same as brahms you know it's just um you know a different maybe different articulation or or different things like that but um once you realize that then it really you get totally absorbed in a different way um and 
you know, it's kind of, to me, when I think of more contemporary music, it's kind of more savory in a way. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you... More seasoned. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you just start appreciating it so much that it can even have more of an emotional impact because it's not as familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's how I really uh, get into just some of the pop songs I love. Just getting to experience the, experience them more by sitting in front of my keyboard mm-hmm. with lead sheet or whatever, and just playing through it. Yeah, it, that's definitely a great way. But I wonder what you would say to the non musician and how they can bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, attaching it to a movie is is yeah. always great because that's familiar to people. You know, they can start to understand it in that way because it's difficult especially contemporary music to get that out to the general public you know it's it's difficult to just go and you know you want to go and listen to this now so yeah. i think finding ways that people are comfortable with and then inserting it that way you know right. so that almost people don't realize it and then it starts to become you know part of them and in a know. way i think that applies to even some of the more uh, quote unquote traditional pieces of music because scott one of my big challenges was and still is, in a way, why we air opera over the radio without the reinforcement of the staging and, and, and the mm-hmm. supertitles. How, you know, that music can just be so intimidating if you don't have that experience. But if you go see, you know, the magic flute, you know, you're you're seeing this really fun story go down and, and you're understanding uh, the music in that way, you know. Can you sure. imagine Wagner without the action? <laughs> As like a first time <laughs> listener, like how intimidating that would be. Sure, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, Garrett and I often tell people, well, if you're, you know, if they ask us for like a start point for classical, then tell pointing them to their favorite soundtrack is a good Mm. place to start. It seems like writing for film and television might be a lifeline for some of the classical music. You know, it might be a a gateway drug. (laughs) What what do you think about that? I think I'm going to go watch uh, Michael uh, Giacchino's score for Up this Friday. You know, I think think orchestras are catching on, and I think program directors are catching on um, that it could be a lifeline for, for... what is unfortunately sometimes a general lack of interest in, in Western classical music. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting. I was kind of thinking as we were talking, if we listen to a soundtrack on its own, take, for example, an incredible composer, outstanding orchestrator like John Powell. You know, you, li- you listen to a score like How to Train Your Dragon or mm-hmm. something like that. This is dense orchestral writing, you know, albeit it's maybe a bit more melodic than than what we would traditionally hear in in orchestra hall. But I mean, it's it's really dense, classically late romantic inspired music, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think what film music is doing is effectively branding itself, you know, because you're you're taking music that, for all intensive purposes, might not be all that different from the rest of Western classical repertoire, and you're attaching it to something that has social capital. But is that branding? Uh, d- does that branding play a role in keeping it separate, separated from the, the the normal canon? I mean, when when we, you know, because as an orchestral musician, you know, I would love to play the the movie pops shows, you know, playing along with the score to Harry Potter or whatever. But again, why not have that music on the same concert as your Beethoven symphony or or whatever? Dude, you make it happen. I'm there. For real, because I, 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 I think a lot of people would be too. And I, I think kind of to Scott's point, I think it kind of can be a quote unquote gateway drug because maybe it's the score for Star Wars that gets someone in the concert hall. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And then they have that experience. They're they're watching the movie. They're seeing the players. And maybe then that little voice that lives in the back of all of our heads says, hey, 
what if we just tried Magic Flute? Yeah. You know, maybe we should come back and get tickets for something else because I think this would be good for my kids or I really enjoyed this. I do think that there is a pivot point there that that could happen. So it might not it might be separate right now, but I think I could envision a time where where the two scenarios could end up running into one another. Right. And then on my end and Vela, I'm sure you can speak to it, you know, um I mentioned Harry Potter. There's no piece of mu- there's no page of music more difficult than the Quidditch match in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, you know. Do you have have you, you know, through the perform and I, I think you touched on this before, but again, through the performance um of some of this music, um I, I'm sure it's it's heightened your appreciation for the process of it, not just the sound of the music, but the folks who who uh, create these original recordings of these scores, and and then even of course the folks who write the music itself. Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. I mean, I actually watched the Minnesota Orchestra playing um, the Harry Potter. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Um, re- How did a they few do? Weeks ago, it was amazing. I had so much fun, you know, <laughs> and I was kind of tentative coming from a super classical background, like, oh, I'm going to go to that one, you know. But it was so cool and. The best part about it was how many people were were there, you know, watching. Um, I just think, like Will was saying, it it is like even if it's just that one concert and there is no Brahms or Beethoven being performed, the the people seem to enjoy it so much, and I think that that's only that's just a step forward, you know. Yeah. And it's so cool, and like you said, it is difficult. It's challenging music, um, and yeah, I, th- I just think it's really cool <laughs> and for me and that validates it even more when you have these concert halls packed you know i remember uh years ago uh in detroit we did a you know who wrote the music for um i, I should know uh oh it wasn't an elfman pops but it was the guy who like illustrated the nightmare before christmas but also produced um Wee's playhouse so um so so that person and then all the all, all of the music connected to that and you couldn't you couldn't walk into the building there there were people standing in the lobby who yep. didn't have tickets just trying to hear what they can and you know with all due respect to to Debussy and and Rachmaninoff and all those people it's just not the same thing that that does not happen in 2019 right Right. And I don't think there's any reason that that it can. And actually, you know, to your point, Vel, I thought it was really interesting. You said you were almost tentative and had a blast when you went. (laughs) I think we've got a a person that has experienced a pivot point. Not that Vela hasn't absolutely embraced modern music. I've been fortunate enough to have her on a ton of projects that Mm -hmm. involve modern music. But I mean... I think we have someone in the studio that has embraced that embraced that pivot point. Pivot point is a great way to put it because what about the person who's spending four to six hours a day playing video games and right. they get that sort of soundtrack going through their mind and then when they're away from the video game and they hear the radio, it's not as lush or involved or anything. So maybe that would be a pivot point for them. And, right. and you know, I could you mentioned video game music. I could sit here for an hour and talk about Final Fantasy VII, period. <laughs> oh you know, my just goodness. That, but just that in itself. And then Scott, sometimes we do play some of those uh, the composers, uh, Nobuo Uematsu. Sometimes we uh, air some of his music and every single time, 1000% of the time, I'm getting all these emails emails about their memories of of this or, or, or yes. hearing this music there. Yeah, we haven't really touched on video game music much, but it, it seems like that is in the in the same conversation, basically. I mean, game music is just as involved and dense and expensive as film music is now. And I mean, when you think about it, games are grossing far more than the box office yeah. in many respects. You know, so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that kind of becomes the new operatic form of, of 
expression for composers, so to yeah, speak, yeah. in terms of accompanying visuals. I mean, if you look at scores for games like uh, Ori was a recent one that that we just got through at my house. I mean, English composer, his name is escaping me, unfortunately. Gorgeous live score that was actually recorded down in Nashville. Oh, okay, really? Uh-huh, okay, yeah. uh-huh. uh, Ocean Way, I think that was the studio okay. they did it at. And I mean, uh, Shadows of War, uh, I mean, really gorgeous experimental uh, use of non-Western sounds. Um, gorgeous orchestrations. I mean, it's it's on par, and it has been for some time with with how involved film music can be sometimes. And in in respect of what you're expected to deliver for video game music, it's very dense, mm-hmm. far denser, because you have you have one possible permutation of a film, right? Excluding directors' cuts and everything else, sure. but you mm-hmm. have you have one possibility in terms of an outcome. For games, you have choices, and you have path deviations, and you have situations, and so you have all of these individual layers of music that will either be triggered or not triggered sure. depending upon the scenario so in some respects it's i i've i haven't worked much in video game music myself but it's very dense and very, you dense. and you mentioned the um expense of it all i want to talk about that for a couple seconds sure. i mean how does it, it seems like the expense of commercial music um can create a barrier for a lot of people who might be interested in entering that world sure you um expensive in terms of producing it or expensive in terms of entrance for like a composer to get involved well i mean if i want to become a, a commercial music composer today there's certain software and there's certain hardware sure that i need and it's not free right 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 i think the really cool thing that is happening though is i think that there's a level of accessibility that we're approaching i mean a lot of a lot of us work from home you know a lot of us don't have a fully treated studio with an iso booth mm-hmm. maybe we have a moog synthesizer a midi keyboard couple of monitors and some speakers. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's our setup. And um, I think that there are people that are just as lethal, you know, so to speak, yeah, in, the, yeah. in their composing abilities with that rig as some of us that maybe have a fully spun out studio out of our houses. You know, I, I don't think that there needs to be this huge barrier of entry. I mean, yeah, so like a copy of Logic is what, 200 bucks, and you've got a whole raft load of sounds. I think once you get into things like orchestral programming and stuff like that, that can become more cost prohibitive for composers sure. to get involved in, because that software does tend to be more expensive. Did, did you see cost, um, Vela, as a, as a barrier, you know, the, the further you get into this style of music or, or any other barriers that folks might not think about that, that are unique to this? Um, I mean, cost is always a barrier as a, as a cellist, you know, sure. just my instrument is a barrier. That G-string isn't cheap, right? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's really not. <laughs> um, and that's something that I'm still figuring out, you know. I mean, throughout college, I played on a cello that I was borrowing, you know, from the school. Um, and then I had to play my cello, which I'm playing on now, which isn't the ideal setup for me, you know. Mm. But you, I think it's easy to get... Because there are so many options now of how to make this better and better and better. It's easy to get stuck because you're waiting to get that better thing. Mm. So I think it's important to to just use what you have yes. for now and not get, get blocked by it. You know, I'm still struggling with that. You know, I practice my cello and I'm like, oh, I feel like it can just do a little bit more and I'm you know I can feel it in inside but it's mm-hmm. not doing it yeah and it's very easy to get frustrated so oh, yeah yeah I'm still figuring it out but hopefully you know I'm saving up for my next cello so yeah I've, I've had many <laughs> sessions in the practice room screaming at my bassoon why won't you do what I'm telling you to do yeah. you know so yeah. I, <laughs> I definitely know that um but you know so so much of what the two of you are saying um is bringing me back again to this idea of the sound the aural aesthetic that we're sending centering 
uh, as we move forward in classical music. You know, Vela, you said it's easy to get stuck. And that's how I feel about programming these days. It's so easy to get stuck on this on this sound that is just, you know, a little old and a little dare I say, um, outdated. But, mm. you know, with, with those connections uh, being there, it can uh, really be demystified. So, you know, on on that note, um, I'm wondering if the two of you have, like, you know, suggested uh, listening for movie scores or, or some sort of other commercial music that could really make a, a one of those traditionalists in classical music say, oh, wow, this is some really incredible music, too. Um, I think historically speaking, uh, uh, we keep talking about pivot points today. That seems yeah, to yeah. be kind of the theme. I think folks like Philip Glass are a really important pivot point. And, were, and he is such a polarizing composer. You know? Right, right. So but certainly his repertoire, you know what I mean? And, and I think that that's a place to start because sometimes people that enjoy classical music, especially on an academic level, can talk comfortably about Glass and Brahms. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're, they're in different sections of the same textbook at the very least, sure. you know? Um, so, I mean, maybe experimental is a good place to start. Throw yourself into the deep end. Pull up the social network, you know? Watch, a great one. Watch that movie. And, and maybe even don't just listen. Maybe watch too. Maybe that is, in fact, the gateway hmm. because, I mean... Even just via osmosis, we can soak things in and we can absorb it even if we don't consciously do it. So I, I would I would say continue watching films. Um, social network, network would be a good place to start. Meet Joe Black. And I know we were talking about this one beforehand. Yeah, Thomas yeah. Newman's a favorite of mine. I think he writes very melodically. Um, and he also does some more experimental things with electronics and the orchestra. That might be also be a good pivot point. Um, any one of his scores truly... Um, and any one of the films he's worked on would be a great jumping off point for folks that are just kind of getting acclimated to new music. Yeah. But what would you consider, Vela, a, a good pivot point uh, for folks, especially all of, you know, because you said your mother was uh, is an opera singer and ha would have uh, students uh, coming in. And I'm sure that these students are, you know, focused as a student should be in the repertoire that, you know, could potentially give them a job. But, you know, ag again, for you, what would be those suggested pivot points for folks? Yeah, um, it's a hard question. Um, you know, I think a lot of artistic movies, art movies are a great point to start because they are often more aware of the composers that they're using. You know, for example, the movie Under the Skin. Okay. The, the soundtrack is so cool. Um, it's a female composer and it's it's quite out there, but um, it's an amazing soundtrack. Um, that's maybe a little bit out there but sure. but then also like will was saying movies like up i mean that soundtrack was beautiful yeah. I, I need i need to watch that again because I, I i've only seen it once and i still remember that it was so beautiful you know so yeah, yeah. Uh, just exploring different different styles of movies as well yeah you know? and you know as, as we begin to uh wrap up here you know we were talking a lot about the mandalorian and when i think about uh princess leia's theme you know mm -hmm. it almost makes me misty because i think about this woman, this real life woman who played this character who might as well have been real and, right. and how and how this piece of music sort of immortalizes her. You know, I, I got I was last week I was talking about this concept because I aired um, uh, Elgar's Enigma variations and how, you know, he immortalized his friends through, mm -hmm. through those different uh, variations. And the same is happening um, in film and commercial music. And I feel like it, it deserves equal standing, not not separate, but equal standing, but equal standing in the genre, in the concert hall, 
on the radio and and ev- everywhere else the music exists. I'm very biased, but I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Great, I'm glad. <laughs> so, Bella, uh, for folks who and and I'm going to ask you a little bit about the uh, piece of music that uh, we're going to hear. But, um, Bella, if, if folks want to uh, learn more about you or maybe even book you, how can they uh, how how can they do that? Um, yeah, they can reach me. Um, I have a website, bellafarquison.com. Yeah. Um, they can reach me there. Um, I'm on social media, um, on Instagram, on uh, Twitter, <laughs> um, also email. But, yeah. you know, I, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're very accessible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Will? How, how, can, how, can, uh, how can the next advertiser ask you to write the masterpiece they need to sell Snickers bars or whatever? Unfortunately, I'm not on the, on the gram. I, okay. my, my wife has that covered for the both of us. Oh, nice. Um, but uh, I have a website, willvandecromert.com, and it's a painfully long last name, but there's only one of me, I promise. Okay. Um, yep, so that's probably the best way to hear my work and, and get hold of me. Okay, well, thanks so much for uh, being on Triloquy today. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the piece of music that we're uh, going to hear? Sure. So the piece of music we're going to be hearing is based, uh, it comes from a web series that I just completed. Um, the web series was out of Los Angeles. It was directed and produced by two of my very favorite now collaborators, uh, directed by a gentleman named Charlie Roth and produced by Bruno Xavier. And, and Quinn's Place is, is very interesting from the standpoint that it's 10 episodes and every uh, episode we start from scratch, right? The only thing that remains constant is the place. So we, we find ourselves mm. in an Airbnb and we find ourselves in that same Airbnb every single episode. But what changes is the characters that arrive, the experiences that they have, and maybe one character will leave something behind, which That's will cool. affect the trajectory of the next character. And so, yeah, it was um, it was just a, a blast to collaborate with them. And they've submitted to Tribeca, Sundance, and, and several others. So hopefully we're going to get some play here soon too. Nice. So, paint, so paint the picture of, uh, of, uh, of this piece of music. So, so who's staying in the Airbnb now. <laughs> so the very little plot details that I that won't go beyond the bounds of my non-disclosure oh, sure. agreement. Okay, yeah. All right, yeah, commercial music. All yeah. right, I know. So um, essentially, you, in this portion, uh, it's uh, in one of the latter episodes, and we find one of our characters in a very emotional, pivotal moment, and that's about as vague as I can be. <laughs> I guess we found the title of this one, Pivot Point, right? We use that that phrase a lot. <laughs> All right, well, thanks. Again, to the both of you. It's really been great. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us.